This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Ontario PC Party choosing their interim leader today in wake of the Patrick Brown sexual misconduct story. What are the prospects and uh, what will the process be? Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. I always enjoy it. Could you have seen this one coming, Henry? Certainly not this way. Um, I mean, I always found him to be a bit of an unusual person. Uh, I mean, and first of all, I was worried because he was coming from federal politics, and no one really knew much about him in terms of Ontario politics and Queen's Park. And so sometimes you wonder, you know, is there something I don't know? I mean, with the, with the people who have been at Queen's Park for a while and running for office, they, they tend to be very carefully, you know, looked at, talked about. The Queen's Park Press Gallery does a pretty good job, I think, of telling people about them. Uh, but then when you have somebody coming from outside, there's always a risk that, you know, there's some skeletons in the closet that people haven't found, and now we found those skeletons. Uh, what does this do to the PC party moving forward? Well, it, it um, I mean, this can't, comes at a bad time. It's going to be very hard to get all sorts of new campaign materials and get up and running with a new person. This is just, you know, and it's unclear whether they're going to use the same campaign team. If not, they have to assemble a new one. They have to decide who for sure who's going to lead them into the campaign and remember the campaign starts in about three months and that's a short short period of time given all that you have to do so it's a very bad time it's uh, you know organization is going to be very weak um, and 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 very confusing and i i would set expectations down uh you know quite a bit for them to uh really run a strong campaign after all this simply because they just don't have the time to get reorganized uh with a new uh leader for the election so is this a break for kathleen Wynne or andrea horvath it's a break for both of them uh you would think normally and now that may not happen that given the disorganization that we have uh with the conservatives with progressive conservatives right now that uh, is, people are going to basically zero in on Win versus Andrea Horvath, and if they're happy, if they reconsider their negative views of uh, the premier, and she has been, we know for the last year and a half, running between 12 and 20 percent of popularity, uh, which is really terrible for for a sitting premier. Uh, they may reconsider that, and so she may pick up some conservatives who'll come over. Um, on the other hand, probably I would think if for people who want to change, there's really, you know, change of party, they may think there's really only one choice. If we want to change in party, you have to go with Andrea Horvath. So it's, uh, it's I think, especially good for Andrea Horvath, uh, somewhat good for uh, the premier, I would say, at this point. So you don't think there's absolutely any way the PCs can recover from this? Well, they can. I would say they have five chances out of 100 to do well. I would think if they come in second they should probably feel good about themselves. <laughs> uh, if they should, you know, uh, if they should uh, form the government with a majority, I mean, that, that's a miracle. <laughs> what? That, then we will really see a miracle at that point. Well, uh, I, I think we've seen stranger things. We, we uh, could, but I, uh, listen, uh, I, wouldn't, I would take 101 odds that that's not going to happen. Okay, let me throw this one at you, Henry. Uh, right. we, we, uh, lots complained that they didn't know who Patrick Brown was. He hasn't right. resonated. He just, you know, there's... 
just it's just not happening for them or wasn't prior to all of this. Right. Uh, is this a reset for them? Is this a chance to, you know what, this was going nowhere, let's just jettison this and, and, and a new start? Well, that would and be, many have said, you know, between now and then, you know, four months is a long time in politics. Uh, not an organization. I mean, organizing a campaign is very for a province this big, millions of voters. Uh, you know, it is it is very difficult. And now, and also, what's going to happen is a lot of your conservative party workers are going to be discouraged, and and that's very you know that's very important because a lot of them are going to say uh, they're going to give up. I mean, they're going to believe a lot of them are going to believe they don't have a chance so they'll stop working so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and a lot of conservative voters may not go over to the other two parties they may just stay home and just say i'm sick of all of this i'm sick my party i'm just gonna you know hunker down and lock my door and stay at home yeah that's and that that i think are the some of the really big things party workers won't work pc voters won't come to the polls because they're so discouraged by what happened uh, I'm a CTV reporting the sudden resignation of Patrick Brown amid allegations of sexual misconduct has not de- uh, dented the popularity of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party, according to a new poll uh, from Forum. Uh, the poll found that Tories still have a support of 42% of decided or leading voters compared to 27% for the Liberals and 23 for the NDP. Well, I mean, that, that's what people may say. What I always want to see is, number one, do party workers work hard? in the election and mm-hmm. the people actually come out and vote a lot of those people may feel that way Do, will they come out and vote and i think yeah. when bad news happens they may not change their view you can call them up are you still a conservative yes do you still want the party to win yes but they're really so concerned that they don't come out and vote i mean in politics in elections turnout is so very very important and uh, the conservatives, if you look at their base, their normal conservative base, it's a good size, but it's less than the liberals. And if they are discouraged, then normally conservatives do turn out. But, you know, I, I would be very worried about, if I was a conservative, about basically your party workers and your, uh, your, your uh, rank-and-file base coming out because they'll just be discouraged. I, I, I still expect to see that, and I think... The this whole thing and all the sh- all the shenanigans around it, and I think there's more to come, uh, are 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 likely to discourage the conservatives over the next few weeks. So, do you think the PC party is deflated by this, or do you think they're using this as a new opportunity? Oh, they're deflated, and and underneath the surface, I think there's going to be a lot of fighting going on. Uh, there is what I see already a very big rupture between the leader leadership of the of the political party and the parliamentary wing of the party, and. There, in fact, the parliamentary wing sort of, I think, has been upset that the uh, the party people outside of, of uh, Queens Park foisted Stephen Brown on the uh, uh, on the parliamentary wing. Remember, most of those MPPs did not want Stephen Brown, and I think they been they were been very unhappy. They sort of kept hunkered down, kept their mouth shut, but they were not happy. And I'm sure when he did that caucus call, I'm sure they were just happy to tell him to get out of here. Now, if this happened a year ago, that'd be great. But there's a so there's a big there's a big split. And one new thing that's happened that really indicates it. We now have one of the MPPs, Lisa McLeod, saying, listen, I told campaign officials repeatedly about his problems, and they were ignored me. She said, I told them two or three times. And so now you, you're, you, so here we have an MPP publicly basically saying the campaign officials knew all about this, a lot of this stuff. 
the people up in Barrie knew about this guy. I mean, this was, they said it's no secret. It was a secret to me. I don't, I, honestly, I didn't know. Uh, but certainly they said the people up in Barrie knew that, knew him well. Uh, the people in the uh, Progressive Conservative Party apparatus, you know, the, 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 you know, the people, the leadership, they knew about it. They, they were just hoping that it would never come out. Once it comes out, of course, they got to act like they're indignant and get rid of them. But uh, Lisa McLeod and, and, and a lot of the parliamentarians said, listen, we knew there were problems with this guy, and, and the party didn't do anything. So they blame the party officials for, for, for the mess the party's in right now. Does this speak to a bigger issue of Canadian politics in general? Yeah, well, sometimes, I mean, it's not uncommon to have a split between your MPs and your party, uh, your people running the I'm talking party. about, I'm just talking about sexual misconduct in Canadian politics. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's zero tolerance now, uh, even on an allegation. I mean, at this point, any kind of allegation could come up and, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, people could make it, you know, we don't know. You know how little you can use to, to force a person either to, to resign or to be kicked out of a minister's job or maybe to kick, get kicked out of parliament or the legislative assembly. It just like seems like just about anything that comes up, uh, boom. And I I gotta believe there's going to be a lot more stuff because quite frankly, I mean most people have done things they've been you know when they look back at them said oh my god I shouldn't have done that and if some people talk about that and raise it. I mean, you know, boom, the current atmosphere is boom, you're gone. Well, we're seeing that with the Ken Hare situation as well. I Absolutely, mean, Absolutely, that's it's... right. Yeah, I mean, he had a lot of bun- I mean, he was seemingly a, a a difficult person. Sometimes these people, and I think that's also partially true of Patrick Brown. Some of these people who do these sort of things also have characteristics where they're, you know, really have a sharp edge on people and they push people around. Cuz usually trying to control people goes along with it. And so sometimes you see that and uh certainly i mean patrick brown he tra- you know he tried to be a control freak in his party i mean we had this big fight in hamilton over the nomination in the west end of the city that spectator reported that uh, two of the candidates uh, the, the, who sued the party had lawyers and that apparently between those two candidate candidate people who didn't get it and the party officials that they spent almost already a million a million bucks on legal fees behind the scenes i mean it just shows you but there is just terrible rifts in this party. Uh, I, I, and I'm, I'm talking about allegations and whispers that are going on through all of politics, whether sure. it's provincially or, or, or federally. And, sure. and we certainly hear of the whispers, the whispers, and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, are we too fast to act here? Do, uh, you know, do, do we need to pause and, and make sure all of these allegations are correct before we act? Well, I'm, I'm sure we're going to find a case where an allegation is made, and then eventually we find out, well, it was not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, it's bound, you know, you have a hundred allegations by a hundred different people. You're going to have, you're bound to have one or two, yeah. you know, who are going to say, when people look at it and say, hey, that's not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, and of course the temptation is if somebody is really holds a grudge against somebody for some reason, why not make the allegation? It's a good way to get even with them. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that, that temptation is out there, and we have no way of knowing whether a person's doing that because they w- want to get even with somebody. And and if you're just going to be jump jump to you know jump to uh, conclusions and assume every allegation is correct and the person ought to have a big penalty, you you're gonna you you are in some cases a minority, a small minority probably, uh, really hurt somebody who's. Uh, 
didn't deserve it. I mean, a, a different type of allegation. We do have a case in Ontario. A few years ago, Greg Sabera was finance minister, and, and the RCMP said, oh, yeah, released stuff and said, oh, yeah, he's been finagling money through his through the Sabera family and not doing things he's supposed to do, and, and they blackened his name. He had to resign from the, uh, from the cabinet. I think he was out of the cabinet for 11 months, and at the end of 11 months, the RCMP or whoever was investigating, OPP, I can't remember who, said, oh, we don't have anything on him. I mean, you can go back to your normal life. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's that that's not very nice after you do that to a person. And and in a different kind of case, uh, former attorney general, um, you know, the um, uh, just gone blank on a minute. But the former attorney general who was involved with the uh, oh, Brian Michael Bryant, who was uh, involved with that right. case where that uh, cyclist, yeah, the cyclist mm-hmm. who was mm-hmm. inebriated, started threatening him using a convertible on Bloor yeah. Street, going slowly, started threatening him and his wife. And, uh, you know, and, act- and and because of the, you know, when they got into a bit of a tussle, uh, you know, and he yeah. fell off, hit his head, was not wearing a helmet, I don't think, died. And essentially they, they threw the book for a while at, at yeah. Michael Bryant because yeah. they wanted to show that politicians weren't getting any special favors. They brought in people from, you know, prosecutors, I think, from B.C. or Frau West. And they'd spent a lot of time looking at this and turned his life upside down. And at the end of it, they said, no, there was no fault on his part. Yeah. I mean, they, so, the, you know, those mistakes happen, and they, they can be really, really devastating on the people who are really innocent. So you have to be careful. What does Andrea Horvath have to do to capitalize on this? She has to be positive, upbeat, and she has to tell people what she is going to do to, uh, essentially, that is going to improve on what the liberals do. And, and, and basically say, that her basic message has to be, I'm the agent of change. If you want change, real change, you have to vote for me. And, and, uh, and that's what she, and if she, if she can convince enough people to do that, like her, if she, she has to turn her popularity into votes. She, her popularity is very close to what the NDP would need for a majority, but not everybody has, you know, done the transfer from popularity to vote. She's, she's got to convince people, you've got to vote for me, and, and, and even though, you know, I'm pop, uh, turn that popularity into a vote. Uh, Ontario and NDP, we know that history. So does this mean it's a free ride for win, uh, despite the last 15 years and people wanting change? Uh, well, I mean, the thing is, is that she she has been down, in the, you know, her popularity has been down for a year and a half. That is usually very hard, no matter what else happens. That is usually hard to come back. I mean, if she has to, you know, she has to almost double her popularity right now and turn that into votes in order for her party to win. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's a big, big hill for her uh, to, to do. And again, she's been in there 15, you know, for, uh, their party's been in there for 15 years. Uh, a big thing, too, people don't talk about, but we have seen this since World War II. People in Ontario normally like to have one, one yeah. party in Ottawa and a different party in Ontario. That- uh, we've just found out, uh, Henry, Vic Fideli, party finance critic, represents riding of Nipissing, has been chosen as the interim leader. There you go. Exactly, and that's what that's what I thought. I mean, I thought he was one of the top two candidates uh, because he did run a very good campaign for the leadership. Now he didn't win, and he had to pull out. And it, I think it was basically he just couldn't meet enough people. He wasn't well known. But I remember people would go, you know, say, "Oh, I don't think he's all that good." And people would say, "Well, come to a meeting and meet him." And these people come back from a meeting and they'd say, "Man, this guy's great." 
And the trouble is he just couldn't meet enough of people because when you do meet him, he's, he is very impressive. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. It's never dull. Henry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always enjoy talking to you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Time for another edition of This Week in Trump, also known as TWIT. An almost apology for an anti-Muslim retweet, uh, Tump at Davos, and sitting next to Theresa May. That looked like a comfortable meeting. Uh, to talk about all that sort of stuff, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and, of course, contributor to the Washington Times. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for taking the time today. We always appreciate it. Oh, I'm happy to do so, Scott. I uh, can't get into uh, south of the border until we uh, ask you your opinion of, of what's happening in Ontario politics over the last 24 hours with the progressive conservatives. Your thoughts? Well, look, things are finally in a better place, I think it's fair to say, with uh, Vic Fideli being nominated and elected as the interim leader of the Ontario PCs. So if nothing else, the bleeding has stopped and things are on a, a much better road. I've known Vic for years. He's a very affable fellow, very intelligent, very fiscally conservative. And I think he'll be very, very good in front of the media, in front of the people on the campaign, which includes voters and others, if they opt to choose to carry on with him through the election. That still has to be announced. But thus far, it's, it's a good sign, and it's good to see that things have sort of settled down. As for what happened with Patrick Brown, look, I've known Patrick for about 25 years. You know, I, I wrote a piece about him which sort of redefined or recreated his political ideology to sort of get people to understand more about it and where he was in terms of balancing red Tory and blue Tory leanings, that being on the left side of conservatism and the right side of conservatism. There were a lot of people who worked very hard in his team for the past few years who have helped build up the war chest, who have built up an enormous amount of members of the party is now over 200,000. I think it was roughly about 12 to 13 when he started. And he did a lot of things that were to the benefit of the party. But unfortunately, what has happened here, which, to be perfectly honest with you, I never heard any sort of stories about. I mean, obviously, Patrick Brown was a single guy. He dated women in Ottawa. I certainly knew that, met a couple of them. But I obviously never heard anything like sexual harassment or something of that nature. The problem is that you have two things going on at the same time. You have, if he wants to fight these charges, which he has the right to do, he'll fight it in a court of law, and that's how our democracy works. But in the court of public opinion, where he lost the support of party supporters, uh, senior advisors, and would-be campaign team supporters and, and workers, uh, it was disastrous right there. He unfortunately had no choice but to resign. I know he obviously didn't want to, and for a few hours he tried to hold out. But unfortunately, just things just turned completely against him. And whether you feel that the allegations are real or not real, whether you think that they're criminal or not criminal, and they certainly don't seem criminal to me, at least on the surface right now, the public has spoken and we have moved forward. But the good news is that the Ontario PCs finally seem to be in a better place. And I think that's ultimately what matters after what has been, quite frankly, a pretty lousy week. Uh, did the staff react too quickly? What does that say? Were they looking for an out for him? See, that's a hard question to answer, only simply because I don't know what Dan Robertson, Ali Khan Velshi, and others knew about him. I, I've known these two men, among others, for quite a number of years. And I can tell you that certainly in the, in the case of Ali Khan Velshi, who was Brown's chief of staff, 
He's worked for Stephen Harper. He worked for Jason Kenney in his time in federal politics. And he basically fought for them all the way in, you know, to the very tooth and nail of any sort of problem he had to deal with. This was a person who would, was a stand-up guy and would stand and defend you at all and every cost. So the question here is, why, based on the information that he knew or that he was given, either that day or over time, would he basically then just thrust his hands up in the air and then just say, no, I can't do it, as well as Dan Robertson, as well as Ken Balson, as well as others who left that day. I haven't spoken with any of them, quite frankly, and I, I will probably at some point, but I think they need their, their peace and quiet. They've had a pretty rough ordeal, and I can speak to them over time. I don't know what the rationale is, Scott, but clearly there was enough there, or based on the times that we live in, and things that have happened since the Harvey Weinstein scandal, the Me Too campaign, and other things, that we've just reached a point now where there, if there is a problem that involves a politician, whether it's true or false, real or imaginary, a lot of people who have expertise and understanding of politics are, are basically thinking twice before they actually set their support base, set their hands, set their careers in motion to defend someone. And maybe they just saw things there that they weren't pleased with, or they just felt so close to an election with only about four and a half months to go that this was not the type of leader that they could effectively run a campaign with, no matter what their personal feelings were or are about Patrick Brown. So there were a lot of intangibles probably at play, but until, you know, until we sort of see other things come out, and maybe if he chooses to, some criminal proceedings against the women who are alleging things against him, we may not know exactly why Patrick Brown fell the way he fell and just sort of suspect it or make sort of allusions to it, as the National Post, for example, did when they talked about the two phone meetings that occurred after Brown had his, you know, really horrifying press conference, mm. a minute and 21 seconds, a very painful thing to watch, and they just sort of basically said this was it. We don't know what was there beforehand. We don't know what information or what allegations existed. All I can say to you is, after knowing him for 25 years, and I do feel badly for him, I certainly never heard a single word about sexual harassment in my days. But time will tell, and we'll see what happens. Is this an opportunity for the PCs or a setback? Is this a reset or a setback? Well, I mean, if you want to be negative, you can say it's a setback, but I think you have to be positive and look at it as a reset, because... Vic Fideli is a different type of person. Can he beat Kathleen Wynne? I think he has a chance. Vic Fideli, as I said, is a very affable individual. He's very good on both one-on-one meetings and in group settings. Like, he, he loves to campaign. He enjoys politics thoroughly, much like Patrick Brown did and much like others have, including Tim Hudak and so forth. I think Vic Fideli is in a position to sell himself as a possible premier. This has been the party's finance critic, for many years, so he certainly understands better than most in that caucus what the problems are with Ontario and what the fiscal and financial solutions would be to make these, the province's engines go further. And certainly, he is also willing to use most of Patrick Brown's policy platform, the People's Guarantee, and work on it. You know, he may tinker with things here and there. Well, that remains to be seen. But by and large, he's content with the platform. I think Fideli will turn out to be a very viable candidate. 
I believe that he will be able to catch up any lost ground that has occurred over the past week. And I think people will find, especially Ontarians, when they get to know him, that Vic Fideli is just a good guy, a bright guy, a capable guy, and a potential premier. So my hope is that this is just a little, you know, not necessarily a blip on the screen, because we don't want to call that based on other terms we heard earlier this Mm. week. But we have to hope that this is a bad episode that is finally over, that the reset button is on, and then Vic Fideli can move forward, which I think he can, and run a professional and an excellent campaign to become the, pre- the province's next premier. So will there be a leadership convention or campaign at some point, or is Vic the guy? We're sort of unclear of that at this point. Yeah, I'm unclear as to what they're planning to do. I, I keep hearing, probably as you do, mixed signals as to whether he is the interim PC party leader now or he's going to lead them into the next election. I, I guess all we can say is until he speaks, we don't know, but let's hypothetically say that he is going to lead them into the next election. No matter what, there will have to be a leadership race, one, because that's what the party constitution demands, right. and two, if Fidelity does win and wants to serve as premier for a long period of time, there has to be an air of legitimacy as well, because this was a decision made by caucus. Again, perfectly legal, follows the Constitution, right thing to do, and a quick fix to a bad problem. But at the same time, Fidelity obviously needs to go to PC party supporters and ensure that he has their support. There's not a lot of time right now. You could certainly hold a very quick leadership campaign if you want. There are ways to do it in probably three to four weeks. It's just a question of whether they want to or whether they believe that Vic Fidelity has the experience, knowledge, and know-how to run a campaign right now. So, Michael, so we'll what, shortly. So, Michael, what would happen if theoretically uh, he, he runs, takes him through the, the election, as we know he's going to, uh, sure. in the interim, and he wins and then becomes premier? Do you have a leadership convention to see if he should still become premier? Well, you know what? You still do need a leadership convention. I yeah. mean, that's what the party constitution states. And then unless they're planning to either adjust it or change it or just simply modify it for this short period of time, at some point or another, Vic Fideli needs to face the PC caucus, uh, sorry, PC supporters, and that basically is all the grassroots members. They have to basically confirm that he is their leader. Now, you would certainly think, Scott, that if he wins the election after all that has happened, and he basically becomes the white knight of Ontario PC politics and wins the election, you would be very stunned and surprised to see if, say, you know, uh, the PC grassroots member turned against him and then didn't want him to sit as premier. But Again, we've seen weird things in politics before. I mean, Sir Winston Churchill, after his great acts through World War II, as you know, was, you know, just as World War II was ending, he was beaten by Clement Attlee and the Labour Party in 1945 and was unceremoniously dumped from office for about six years. You would think that in that case, although a very different scenario, that you would have actually respected all that Churchill had done for Great Britain and for the world, that he would have won that election. But the voters decided that they had had enough of Churchill, especially now that as a wartime leader, he was not necessary anymore. They wanted a different parliamentary leader. In the case of Vic Fideli, it would be very surprising if after all he did that they would turf him out. But again, in politics, anything is possible. All right, last question on this. Is this Andrea Horbath's and the NDP's best opportunity? Oh, by far. 
I mean, there's no question about it, even though I obviously don't like the NDP, and anyone who's ever listened to our discussions knows that. Um, yes, this is the biggest moment they've had since Bob Ray formed government in 1990. I mean, Andrea Horvath, sure, she would have run an effective campaign, but I think she also knew that even though Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals, her other opponent on the progressive side of things, shall we say, you know, was obviously dropping the polls. At the same time, in the last few months, she's actually been picking up momentum, and the numbers between her and then-leader, then-PC leader Patrick Brown were actually starting to close up, which means that the NDP would have been sort of bullied out again, sitting in third place way down in the polls, and way down overall once the election was held with, overall number, with an overall number of seats. This way based on everything that's happened, I think Horvath, if she's careful, can now stand as a very viable progressive alternative to win in the Liberals and basically say that after all that has happened and all the machinations, the fact that the PCs had to switch their leader at the last minute, that Dalton McGinty's old chief of staff was found guilty of the whole, you know, the whole hydro hmm. scandal and, and, and other things, that she could make the argument that do we really trust Kathleen Wynne, the Liberals, and even in the midst of the political tsunami that's, hap- that's engulfed Ontario over the last little while, is this any different? Like, does this give you, quote-unquote, more confidence in the Wynne Liberals because everybody around her is sort of collapsing? I think that is the easiest strategy she can use, along with the policy platform that she introduces. And no, I mean, anyone who thinks that Andrea Horvath's days as being touted as a possible Ontario Premier are over are completely wrong. If anything, this week has given her added momentum. It's going to be an interesting few months, that's for sure. All right, let's move on to uh, Donald Trump in Davos. And uh, I saw the clip last night of him and uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May. And boy, that was one of the more awkward moments as well on TV. Uh, there he is, uh, t- you know, spouting how great she is in the UK after all the stuff that sort of preceded him. Yeah. What sort of impact is he making at Davos? Well, yeah, you're right that it was a very awkward meeting. I don't think it was necessarily as awkward as the presser he had with uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel last year, mm. but it was pretty close. And there's no doubt that Theresa May, the current Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, has made some less than complimentary, shall we say, comments about uh, Mr. Trump and the way that the White House is operating under his leadership. So that in itself is, it was kind of an interesting dynamic. And yes, I mean, obviously, it's kind of fascinating to watch Donald Trump say nice things about a woman who probably he's, no, he's in public, he's had lots of issues with, and God knows what he said in private about. But that's also the way politics runs and operates. And sometimes even when you encounter someone you don't necessarily like or have a political friendship with, you still make nice comments in politics. It actually seems to show that Donald Trump is slowly but surely understanding how he's supposed to act as president of the United States and as a world leader. But in terms of Davos, obviously, no matter what people think about Donald Trump and think about his leadership or his policies, the United States is an important country in the world as an economic player. So in Davos at the World Economic Forum, people obviously, and that being world leaders, want to speak with him, want to deal with him, and want to ensure that they at least have a decent to a half-decent relationship with the United States, no matter what they ought to do with things such as NAFTA or NATO or anything of that nature. They want to make sure that Donald Trump at least either likes them or respects them enough to work with them. And look, I mean, you have to give 
Justin Trudeau, the liberal prime minister of this country, some credit, which I will, that he opted not to arrange a meeting at all with President Trump because he wanted Trump to be accessible to others. Certainly, Trudeau and Trump have spoken more than enough. They're probably in constant communication, and there's no need for him to have a photo op in Davos when the two men have had several photo ops already in, you know, basically Mr. Trump's year in office, or just slightly over a year. So, overall, Donald Trump is an important force. Even if you don't like him, you can't ignore him. You have to try to work with him. The world is also an unsafe place, so I'm sure they're also talking about foreign policy issues and safety and security as well. It's not all about economics, even though the WEF obviously deals primarily with that. But Trump's role in Davos is to, again, to ensure that America plays an important role on the world scene in all aspects. And but thus far, he has done that. Uh, what does Donald Trump learn from getting out of the United States and away from his base? I mean, you saw his softening uh, stance towards, uh, you know, uh, the U.K. and Theresa yes. May, whether that has something to do with hopefully an upcoming visit or not. I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, even talking about uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and NAFTA and, and, well, you know, maybe there's some deals to be had there. I, I mean, he's just sort of all over the map in that respect. Does he take a lot a lighter stance when he's out of the country. Well, he seems to. I mean, look, he, you're right that he was making nice comments about the TPP. That's an interesting one to bring up, especially because the U.S. is completely out of that. They're not in it. They're not coming in it. Do you think, he's, no do you think he's saying that now because there's activity with the remaining partners that are there? Well, We're going to do it with or without you? Well, let's put it this way. If Donald Trump actually thought, I, I'd be stunned if he thought this, that because the United States is not in it, it wasn't going to happen. He knew a few months ago, even though it was, it was stalled for a little bit, that they were getting closer to an agreement without the U.S. being in it. Um, again, it's hard to say. Does Donald Trump always feel that if he's not involved in the deal, so to speak, that everybody else just crumbles? I don't know. If he does feel that way, uh, that's foolish of him. But what it does show is that trade deals and international trade deals can be arranged without the United States being a main player. doesn't mean that their economy is any weaker. doesn't mean that they don't have the economic strength and respectability that others have granted them in the past. But certainly what other countries are saying is that if the United States doesn't want to be part of a particular arrangement, that's fine. We're going on without you. So maybe that is something, Scott, that he has learned on these international trips, that sure, International leaders will meet with him. They will be pleasant with him. If he's pleasant to them, they'll obviously open their, their arms and their doors to him as well. And even the, the reparations that he's making with the U.K., and I, like I said earlier, I don't know if that means a, a trip is in the offing or not, it shows uh, Donald Trump that a little bit of kindness goes a long way. He can still think whatever he wants about these leaders and these countries in private. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if anything, sometimes we learn about things such as the uh, impressive words that he used for Haiti and the African nations, mm. you know, at a recent immigration meeting, which I'll be nice and I won't repeat on air. Um, it, it, what he has obviously learned over time is that even when he thinks he's saying things in private, he's really not. Anything that you discuss out in the open could get reported or leaked one day. So maybe from this trip he's learned that you know, a little bit of diplomacy goes a long way. And if he's able to figure this out and use this more often to his advantage in his second year as president, and again, I'm not suggesting he will because Donald Trump, as we know, is very unpredictable, but if he chooses to do so, 
he may find that a lot of his poll numbers and a lot of the international support, or at least respect, that he has completely lost over this past year might actually recover to some degree. It doesn't mean he can get away from his past statements, past ideas, past comments, etc., but they may be willing to sort of give him a bit of a fresh start or a reboot if they see that at least he's trying to act more like a leader on the world stage. But again, time will tell if that happens. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist and contributor to the Washington Times, talking about uh, Canada as much as we have been in the United States this time out. Fascinating times. Thanks for the time, Michael. As always, much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good weekend. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. An update was given in the uh, Barry and Honey Sherman case, uh, initially thought to be a murder-suicide or reported as such. And now after a uh, press conference, police have revealed it is now a homicide case. Let's bring in Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. He's with us now. Ross, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Just uh, shocking to have the police confirm this is a double homicide. So uh, now calling it a homicide, not a suicide. Why now? What's changed? Because initially it was a murder-suicide, and we talked about this. Why the change? Well, there was lots of questions about that, Uh, lots of questions. And the the detective, Detective Sergeant Susan Gomez, uh, claims uh, essentially that we've done all this work, we looked at everything, we looked at all the evidence, and we're now ready to announce that we believe it's a, um, a double homicide. So they, they went to a, a great big long, uh, uh, long-winded talk about all the things they've done since uh, they were made aware of the deaths, and that now they're they're ready to release it as being a double homicide, which which I think is fairly uh, fairly shocking and very consequential. Did the police uh, were they too quick to say murder suicide? Well, I actually talked to uh, talked to them about that today. I was down at the press conference for covering it, and um, their position, of course, is that they never really said murder suicide. They're saying we always just said suspicious deaths. Hmm. And uh, the fact is, though, that I have my sources, and I know other people who have got uh, impeccable sources on it. That was the working theory at the time that the police were looking at. Now, they didn't say it, but that's what they believed and they were looking at. And it's only now that it's being confirmed as a a double homicide. Uh, Would police have got to this uh, place, to this conclusion, without the family's private investigators uh, helping out? Well, the private investigators, I was up at the scene of the home uh, this morning. And at 11 o'clock, the police turned the scene over to the uh, private investigative team. Uh, the, t- the detective who's out there, a former Toronto police homicide detective, he's securing the scene. They've put uh, private security guards around the house, the same as what the police did for maintaining continuity of it. And they have the scene now, and it's uh, we'll have to wait to see how they start to process it for themselves. But they have not have been privy to any of the information of what's inside the house. So there wouldn't have been much sharing going on back and forth between the, the private people and the police at this point. Does it seem odd to you that uh, the Toronto police have arrived at this other conclusion and now, oddly enough, are handing the house over to the PIs? It, it, you know, it, their case is in place, obviously, before they do that, and now they've sort of come to the same conclusion uh, that, that the private eyes were, were uh, their theory was. So timing all of this, what does it say to you? It's all very unusual. This this whole case from the from the moment it happened, uh, that the nine one one call came in. That there's just been a number of unusual 
ways that this case has been handled. And, and as you say, it's sort of interesting to me that at the same time they're announcing it's a double homicide, they're releasing the scene. Like, you don't normally see those two things sort of done at once. So, I mean, the assumption is there that they've done all the work they need to do uh, with everything inside the home, that they've been spending their time doing their work, getting their production notices, photographing, fingerprinting, lasers, the, the whole deal on the house. Presumably, there's nothing more for them to do at the home. Uh, anything on suspects or motive? There, there's been no no answers on that. There, there, there are. There, they say they're looking for whoever did it. They're not saying that they have any pictures or they know how many people or any descriptions or any such thing. But they are saying that it's a homicide, so presumably someone did the killing. Uh, I asked uh, the detective at the press conference as to whether or not anything was missing from the home, any artwork, any jewelry, any securities, any computers, anything at all missing that might help provide a motive, let's say that it was a break-in for valuables. And the detective said that she was not prepared to answer the question either way, that something was taken or not taken. So the police still are not revealing very much. Um, and really, can they until they have suspects? I mean, clearly this case is still wide open. It is, it is wide open. I've, I've, I was talking to uh, one of the police representatives afterwards, and I said, you know, this is going to have to be one large investigation to look at all the possible avenues that are connected to this family, which are so well known uh, that were worth billions of dollars uh, in contentious uh, business with competitors and family lawsuits and different issues. There's just a, a wide swath of people that need to be uh, talked to, to, to narrow the field. And I'm not sure how the police are going to be able to manage uh, so much of that without applying extra resources. But they told me when I asked that question, if they need more resources, they will get them. And the investigation is ongoing. Uh, would the investigation that the family's doing and the one po- that the police are doing be, uh, would, would they cross paths at all? Would they share information at all? Would they talk at all? Or is it two totally separate things? Well, my, my suspicion is that they're not going to share information uh, with, the, uh, with the private investigators, particularly because now they've called it uh, an active homicide investigation. You just can't give that evidence to private investigators right. and let them do what they want with it sort of thing, because that information could end up anywhere and potentially interfere with the investigation. So uh, I think what they'll be doing is letting the uh, private investigators process what they're able to process. And if there is information that they feel is reasonable uh, to release to them, I, I think they will. But it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be quite the, the, the whodunit and quite the investigation. Uh, what about family response? It was them that first commented that said and said that they didn't believe that the murder-suicide theory was correct and, and hired uh, ad- additional help to get to the bottom of it all. Uh, how are they feeling in all of this? Have they said anything? Yeah, there, there, there has just recently just been put out a statement uh, by the family that was put out, Scott. It's just a short statement. Uh, let me read to you what I have here from my sources who had a copy of the statement sent to them. It says, statement from the Sherman family, update on the Toronto Police Service's investigation. It says the announcement by the Toronto Police Service that the tragic deaths of their parents are being investigated as a double homicide was anticipated by the Sherman family. This conclusion was expressed by the family from the outset, and it is consistent with the findings of the independent autopsy and investigation. The family continues to support the Toronto Police Services in their efforts to seek justice for their parents. 
and pursue those responsible for these unspeakable crimes. Is this does this make the Toronto police look bad or is this just a communications error? Well, you know, as you know, I cover the police on so many different things. And sometimes lack of communications and inability to communicate can make it appear that they're being bad or they're not doing their job or there's some problems. And, you know, sometimes there can be problems. Other times there's not. On this one, we don't really have enough information to say and go on, except I just find it very strange that it's taken this long to get the, that conclusion out. Ross, double homicide. Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. Fascinating, Ross. Uh, we'll keep in touch, that's for sure. Uh, this certainly isn't over. Thank you for your time. You're welcome, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.